Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the High Court battle over puberty blockers, Labour's ongoing infighting and Joe Biden's diverse administration. The High Court has ruled that children under 16 who say they want to change gender are unlikely to be able to give their informed consent. This was a victory for Kira Bell, who as a teenager was prescribed puberty blockers. It was a judgment that will protect vulnerable people. I wish it had been made for me. I think it's a disaster and the inevitable rise in self-harm and suicidality we're seeing is worrying. Kira Bell, a 23-year-old who has detransitioned, has won her battle in the High Court against the NHS Portman and Tavistock Trust. Bell was prescribed experimental puberty-blocking medication at 16 years old. The High Court has now ruled that children can only be given puberty blockers if they are competent to understand the long-term nature of the treatment. The court said that it is highly unlikely that children under the age of 13 would be capable of consenting to this medication and that clinicians should involve the courts even for 16 and 17 year olds where there's any doubt about their capacity to consent. The decision has been slammed by a number of trans groups as an affront to children's bodily autonomy that could cause severe harm to trans children. But Kira Bell, who brought the case, said that this was about protecting vulnerable children. Ella, what are your thoughts on this? It's a really important case, not least because the difficult thing about this is that it's about children. And so you might think that this is sort of divorced from the wider, quite often ugly discussion about and debate about trans rights. So on the one hand, it is a medical question, the issue of Gillick competency, as it's called, the idea that a child could consent to a process which would involve a lifetime of medication changes in the way that they are able to you know have children changes in their ability to enjoy sex all of those things which are really adult questions and adult issues i mean if you talk to a child about sex they're more likely to go yuck than understand what you're talking about so there's a medical question at the heart of this but when i talked to Marcus and Susan Evans. Susan Evans was involved in the case with Kira Bell, who both worked at the Tavistock for a number of years. They were really adamant about one point that I think is worth remembering. 
which is that while this is a case about what medication can be given to children, what consent children are able to give and sort of, as it were, the technicalities, that actually the reason why we got to this point was because of the wider discussion about trans. So the issue and the censorious nature of it. So the the problem with the Tavistock, and this is a really interesting and important point, is that it's not that there's a kind of ideological drive to ruin children's lives. It sometimes gets characterised like that crudely, and that's not the case. What's actually happening is worse, is that because of the fraught nature of the debate about trans, because it's you know almost impossible to ask questions like, do we think this is the right way to deal with children who present signs of dysphoria? There's very little criticism or very little monitoring of what actually is going on because the idea of questioning it is deemed to be transphobic and evil. And what happens and happened in the case of Kira Bell is basically that people slip through the cracks. So the amount of time that a child is given in terms of seeing a doctor and having counselling when they're at the Tavistock, both Marcus and Susan told me is minuscule, is no way near enough to be able to diagnose the kind of treatment that is being given to children. And so instead of this being a kind of ideological war, in fact, what it is, is mismanagement and actually you could argue negligence around care for children enclosed in a sort of fraught political debate. And all of that adds up to quite a poisonous situation in which you end up having children and young people being not treated properly and end up unhappy, as was the case of Kira Bell. Tom? Just to echo what Ella was saying, I think this is a really, really important case. I think outside of a few very extreme trans activists, I don't think anyone could think really seriously that what was going on in relation to children in this area was in any way responsible or even sane, frankly. I'm more than prepared to believe that a child who might experience gender dysphoria may later on in life decide to go down the route of actually changing their bodies, changing their sex, as it were, and be very happy with it at the end of it. But when we're talking about children being edged down this route, being expected to make these huge decisions, which could have huge knock-on impacts on their life, on their ability to have children, etc., as Ella's been talking about. That's just not something that you can expect children to do. And I think there's also the issue of children could be experiencing all kinds of issues, you know, and the extent to which this is presented as the solution to all their problems. It might not be. This is not to say it's the case in every case, but I think Kira Bell herself is an example of someone who felt that they were funneled down this route in a way that was irresponsible. And one point that she has made, which I think is quite important, is that there was, in terms of treatment, in terms of even just counselling outside of kind of medical interventions, all of the institutions, all the charities, etc., mm. they're all pushing in one direction here. There's, there's no, or at least very little, it seems, kind of pushback in the other direction to potentially challenge the feelings that they have to make sure that it's the right route. Because especially when you're talking about interrupting a child's passage through puberty going on to have more interventions you know a lot of this stuff is basically irreversible so to expect a child to go through that is really really damaging and the point that Ella makes about the fact that this is kind of in the context of a very tense debate about transgenderism I mean in a sense it's not a debate really it hasn't been for a very long time the whole trans kids perspective and kind of treatment pathway of the Tavistock, etc., has basically been going on, I think, largely without many people's attention up until uh, the last few years. Yeah. It's been very little open discussion of it. And when anyone tried to challenge or push back against or suggest that maybe a more cautious route should be pursued, then you had a lot of groups claiming to speak on behalf of trans kids, effectively saying, well, you know, blood's going to be on your hands because all these children are going to 
commit suicide. That's been the level of discussion so far. And I think that in the cases of people for whom it wasn't the right decision, for who do eventually detransition and are going to have to live the rest of their lives with the consequences of a decision they were effectively pushed into, these people are basically the victims of that political correctness, the victims of that inability to talk about this issue. So it's a landmark ruling. It's interesting that we've now seen a couple of instances in which the courts have kind of pushed back against some of the excesses, as it were, of the trans ideology at the moment, the Freddie McConnell case that we saw earlier, a court refusing to allow him to put himself down as a father on his child's birth certificate. But again, I think this is another example of why you need open discussion about these kinds of things, because particularly when you're talking about children, the stakes are very, very high. And you can't just for the sake of being seen to hold the virtuous opinion, throw those kids under the bus effectively. As you both said, it you know, the political context is is everything really. I mean, can you imagine being a child experiencing kind of gender dysphoria in this kind of fraught atmosphere? Or imagine being the parent of one of those children where you are told that if you don't go down this particular route, then your child is going to kill themselves. And as you said, that is the level of discussion. That's the level of moral blackmail that is being waged on anyone who raises questions. Now, if you think about this issue divorced from that context, you have a situation where children are being given experimental medication. This is medication that is is licensed to use for stopping the spread of prostate cancer, but there isn't really very much experimental evidence about or even, you know, evidence about the p- potential harms of this medicine when used on children for puberty blocking purposes. Out of the political context where we must affirm trans identity, people would find that scandalous. People would find that really strange and unusual and would say, hold on, let's ask some questions here. So it is welcome that you have the case of Kira Bell and, you know, the High Court pushing back against this a little bit, because without the kind of ideology, it's hard to see how this makes any sense, how this can just be allowed to carry on without any kind of safeguards. Ella? The problem is it's this is tied up in a wider conversation about what kind of care is given to kids, because the point at which someone like Kira Bell gets to the point where she is now happens for a number of reasons. And, you know, if you just take an example, say a child is, for whatever reason, presenting to her parents, saying, I would like to be a boy, and this is what I've decided on. And th- this child is really quite miserable, is unhappy, needs some kind of intervention. The Marcus and Susan were really great at talking to me about this because they've got experience, they've worked with children who are trans. And they said that these parents might be waiting for years, the waiting list is, and actually trans activists point to this as well, for treatment at GIDS, the clinic in the Tavistock. And within that time, you've got an unhappy child who's you know, saying that they're trans. You're, you know, parents, you don't have much knowledge on this. And so you go to a charity like Mermaids or one of these activist charities who say, we've got the answer for you. And so then it, it's in this kind of mundane way that you end up being channeled down a certain route. And then you turn up at the clinic after waiting for two years, absolutely certain that the route you want to go down is to take puberty blockers. Because during that period of waiting, you've had no counselling, you've had no intervention, you've had no questions asked by an expert, you've had no counselling. But the important thing is, in relation to the way that the Tavistock works in the GIDS clinic at the Tavistock, it has been centred around a very specific way of looking at gender dysphoria, which is changing it from a mental health issue to 
a, some, not gender dysphoria any longer, but gender development. And that's a really important shift. The founder of the clinic, Domenico De Cellier, wrote and published a series of essays called A Stranger in My Own Body, which is all about reframing this in terms of development. And it's moving away from the fact, the reality that you have children turning up at a clinic saying, I hate my body. I am a stranger in my own body. And instead of saying, okay, there's a problem here that we might have to fix through counseling or whatever. The process now, because of the wider political context of the of the discussion around trans, is to say, how do we help you develop into the new person you want to be? And that's a really significant shift because that means that you can't say there is a problem that we need to fix here, that there is something wrong with you. I have no time for the argument that every trans person is mentally ill. And when we come to the realm of adulthood, of course, you can make completely reasoned and rational decisions to change your gender and become a different person, call yourself a different name. All those things is fine. But there is a difference between that and turning a blind eye to the fact of a child turning up and saying, I hate my breasts or I hate my genitals, I want to change them. And it's in those nuances which are being lost in this whole debate that you end up having casualties like Kira Bell. So hopefully this isn't just passed off as a kind of attack on trans, as some people have come out and said, Susie Green and others, but instead it's a moment where GIDs and other services have to be forced to self-reflect and think, is this really the right way to be dealing with people who are coming with serious issues? I suppose one problem is that any attempt to kind of get to the root of why any individual might be having these feelings, particularly children, is kind of written off as conversion therapy. You know, Mm. the, the kind of therapists who do want to explore a bit more are basically seen as wanting to eliminate transgenderism from society, which seems to be a completely false accusation, but again, creates these kind of problems with how we how we deal with this. No, I think that is a really scandalous argument to try and compare the two. I think it just doesn't bear out and it certainly doesn't take seriously the specific issues that exist here. But I think also if we're talking about people being erased from a particular discussion, it's people like Kira Bell up until mm. this point. It's the detransitioners. It's the people who are pushed down this route who felt that that was done in a deeply hasty and irresponsible way way and have had to, in effect, pay the price for the cementing of an ideology rather than something which was actually about their own experience, their own issues, their own actual gender identity. And if anyone has been erased out of this discussion in recent years, it's people like Kira Bell, which is why it's so heartening that, again, that perspective has been brought back to the fore in the course of the past week or so. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media, or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way, you can help new listeners to find us, and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, back to the show. Labour's infighting has intensified in recent weeks. Constituency Labour parties have defied diktats from the party HQ, banning motions expressing solidarity with Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn was recently suspended from the party and had lost the Labour whip. Only a year ago, Jeremy Corbyn was Labour's candidate for Prime Minister, and now he's not even a Labour MP. Corbyn's marginalisation followed his claim that the Labour anti-Semitism scandal had been overstated. 
But there has also been a broader attempt by Keir Starmer to sideline the party's left. Last week, left-wing members of the party's National Executive Committee staged a walkout of a Zoom meeting in protest at Corbyn's treatment and at the election of Starmer ally Margaret Beckett as NEC chair. Tom, what do you make of the latest infighting? It's all very familiar. It's all very pathetic on the course of a lot of people on the, on the Labour left. As you say, that kind of transformation from leading the party, claiming that they were one more heave away from a radical so-called Jeremy Corbyn government to Corbyn being kicked out of the party and CLPs being told that they couldn't even discuss motions defending Jeremy Corbyn, not having the whip returned to him after his membership was reinstated, I think really underlines how much that project has failed. Now, on the one hand, of course, the moves from Keir Starmer against the left in recent weeks have been pretty authoritarian, you Mm. know, not allowing... CLPs to even debate the question of Jeremy Corbyn's membership to pass, you know, motions in support of him, etc. Now, again, this is presented as not wanting to make Jewish members feel uncomfortable. So I'm sure there is a pretty ugly atmosphere in some of those CLPs at the moment, but at the same time, you shouldn't conflate defending Jeremy Corbyn with defending anti-Semitism and the, the Labour Party. I think it's wrong to do that. Again, the extent to which there's a number of people who feel silenced because of all of this, although Corbynistas, as we all know, are hardly friends of freedom of speech. But in a sense, Keir Starmer doesn't have to isolate the left of the Labour Party. They've isolated themselves. Mm. For a brief period, they managed to take over the Labour Party due to some very specific you know, conditions, the collapse of the party in so many respects, switching membership, which allowed many new members to flood into the party and then to vote for him. But again, because of the decisions that they themselves pursued in relation to Brexit, embracing first a soft Brexit, then a second referendum, the embrace of a lot of quite eccentric, woke issues, which is something which definitely drove a lot of voters away, as well as Corbyn's own record on things like national security, anti-Semitism, etc. These were key issues which really put voters off at the last election. This failure really is very much theirs. They've isolated themselves. And even in terms of the idea that a lot of Corbynistas still hold on to, which is that they, even if they have lost the country, which seems to be demonstrably true, they still have the Labour Party in the membership. There's even some cracks beginning to form there, which I think are quite interesting. There was a Labour list poll in the past week, which pointed out that the gap between members who think it was wrong not to reinstate the whips Jeremy Corbyn and those who think it was right to do so. It's very small. There's a couple of percentage points in it. They're really kind of just split down the middle on this question. And so whilst it's obvious that Corbynism did not you know, enliven and take over the country as a whole. I think there's even questions to say about the extent to which the Corbyn era represented a genuine radical mass membership Labour Party either. A lot of those members are not necessarily particularly involved. There's, there was a kind of rise of Corbynista kind of clicktivism with the guise of kind of Labour Party membership, if you like, in recent years. And also the swiftness with which Keir Starmer someone very much from the, depending on your perspective, the kind of centre or the soft left or even the right of the party, depending on which day, what he actually believes, it's never entirely clear, was able to take over the party to win over, you know, as big a majority of the members as Jeremy Corbyn. To do that so seamlessly, I think, calls into question the depth of ideological commitment and firmness amongst those members as well. So it's, of course, in terms of Labour Party democracy, the things that are going on, the things that are coming from the top of the Labour Party in terms of trying to isolate the left, many of those things individually are wrong. But the Labour left, because of their own actions and decisions over the course of the past few years, uh, isolated themselves to begin with. And I think it's fair to say that the Corbyn coalition never really had a chance of holding, you know, the the disparate 
kind of backgrounds of a lot of the people who were especially, you know, rejoining the Labour Party to support Corbyn, people from the very far left to kind of Green Party members, Stop the War people, various kind of socialist worker party types. You know, these are people who hate each other, but suddenly in Corbyn, every single one of them thought he was our man. I mean, that was never going to last. Surely at some point there was going to be factionalism even within the left. And I suppose you can see a bit of that now. You know, not only do you have Labour members disagreeing over whether Corbyn should have the whip reinstated, you have the socialist campaign group. Less than half of them signed a motion calling for him to be reinstated, deploring his treatment. There isn't even a unified front in the socialist wing of the MPs. So it's, it is really starting to fracture on, on that kind of side of the party. But as you said, Tom, I think the key point to make is that these people need to own their failure. The problem is you hear constantly that it's never their fault. At the moment, it's just the evil Starmer is manipulative and is sidelining us and is ganging up on us. Previously, you know, they lost the election because of the evil Tory press or the evil centrist MPs who wouldn't back Corbyn, who kept trying to undermine him. Or in other cases, they recently claimed to have lost the 2017 election because of the evil party HQ people who were secretly undermining Corbyn and trying to stab him in the back. So the blame always gets located elsewhere. But really, you know, if you were to take a clear-eyed view of this, you would have to say that the left played a massive role in Corbyn's loss in 2019, not because they were too left-wing on economics or any of those kind of talking points, but because they backed away from Brexit and because they lost the trust of vast swathes of the country, as they like to remind everyone all the time, some of their policies are actually quite popular on the doorstep, but they're just not popular when they're associated Mm -hmm. with the Labour left. (laughs) Ella, your thoughts? Corbyn must be sat at home eating popcorn, smiling to himself, because this party is still completely obsessed with him. On the one hand, you have his sort of loyal followers who believe that he's a fallen hero who really just wasn't given a chance, as you say, Fraser, thwarted at every step and, you know, still wants to talk about the injustice of him having the whip removed and still want to talk about Corbyn. And then on the other side, you have the more Blairite sections of the Labour Party, if you can call them that anymore, who are still obsessed with him as the kind of the poison within the party. All they talk about is how necessary it is to kind of clamp down on any mention of him, basically talking about him in the same breath as anti-Semitism, as if the mere conjuring up of his name is the same as being anti-Jewish. I mean, they're all just still obsessed with Corbyn. And I mean, what were the Corbyn years? But as both of you have talked about, a busted flush. I mean, I remember when he first was elected And despite of myself, perhaps in a deluded way, I did think, hmm, this could be interesting. Something could happen here. And then, of course, the Brexit referendum came around and you realised very quickly that any radical streak that Corbyn or his followers might have pretended to have came to nothing because they completely missed an opportunity to make a populist left-wing intervention into the debate around Brexit. And they are paying for that, have been paying for that ever since. But it's this inability to basically get over a leader who didn't ever manage to either come good on his promises of being a radical or actually do the opposite and be a kind of super villain. He, it was just a series of busted flushes over the last few years. And they're continuing to do that. It's hilarious that now that Corbyn is back in his comfortable position of being a sort of minor party figure, although he's an independent now, of course, he's back doing things that are more radical than the Labour Party. So in the vote about the tier restrictions, the new coronavirus restrictions, Corbyn 
put out a tweet announcing the fact that he'd voted against the government in quite a principled position because the financial support given for those in higher tiers wasn't adequate. And Keir Starmer directs the rest of the Labour Party to abstain in this really kind of wet, toothless attack on the government. So you'd want this party to get over Corbyn and leave him in the past. But then what do they have? They have as you said, Tom, Keir Starmer, who knows what he stands for? There are no radical policies or even actually, you know, centrist policies. There's, it doesn't really stand for anything anymore. So they've got to keep raising from the dead this past leader to remain relevant. I mean, in the news today, there is questions over whether the party's going to split about its approach to Brexit. I mean, Jesus, that again, that they still haven't resolved that issue within their ranks. There's questions about the reinstatement of Corbyn and there's questions about how they're dealing with the what some people are calling the Tories' attack on on workers in the tier restrictions. And they they have no answers. Kirstam has no answer to any of this. So it seems to me the only way this party stays relevant is by talking about Corbyn. And that kind of, <laughs> that tells you all you need to know about how interesting or future orientated the Labour Party mm. is. But at the same time, as Fraser was saying as well, you know, they can't even go through the autopsy. They refuse to think about why it is that they were rejected by the electorate mm. whatsoever. And what's interesting is that you're now seeing this very concerted attempt to just rewrite history. First of all, we have this allegation that various party officials were trying to undermine Corbyn. They say this in relation to the 2017 election in particular, not without cause, as it turns out. Mm. But nevertheless, they had their own people in place by 2019. So that yeah. makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And more recently, we've seen an interesting development from some Labour MPs on the Corbyn Easter side, I should say, which is to try and disassociate themselves from the second referendum policy and the position that Keir Starmer pushed through in relation to Brexit, saying rightly that it alienated working class voters in red wall seats, that it showed that it wasn't taking voters seriously, all the rest of it. But at the same time, this is something that broadly speaking, the Labour left and the Blairites completely agreed on. Momentum polled their members mm. way back when, and they were overwhelmingly Remainers. This is not something which the Corbynistas en masse, with a few exceptions, it's fair to say, were saying that Labour should either advocate for Brexit or even just advocate for accepting the result. They're just completely rewriting history off the back of this, because what this really represents is that when they finally managed by historical accident to take over the Labour Party, it did not herald, as they hoped, a point in which the Labour Party returns to its values, again, energises the working class, transforms society. It led to a historic defeat, which has, bar coronavirus and the way that has scrambled <laughs> the dial in all sorts of ways, could well see Labour out of office for a very, very long time. And the longer that they're incapable of even owning up to those, those issues, the more they're going to just go back in, into the wilderness and look increasingly shrill and increasingly irrelevant. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. President-elect Joe Biden has been praised for the diversity of his incoming team. 
He's chosen an all-female comms team and an all-female treasury team, including former Fed chair Janet Yellen, who could become the first female treasury secretary. Neera Tandon could become the first woman of colour to run the Office for Budget Management. But despite the diversity of identity, the politics doesn't seem to be anything new. A lot of the defence picks in particular seem to herald a return to interventionism. Ella, you've written about this this week. Do you want to talk about it? I mean, that is the central point that while a lot of these picks are women, while lots of them are women of colour, and that is deemed something to be celebrated among Democrats, the fact is they're all veterans of Democrat campaigns. They've been through several either presidencies or attempts at the presidency. You know, Some of them have worked with the Clintons way back then. Some of them have worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign throughout Obama's presidency at various stages and various levels. So, you know, in terms of controversy, these are safe picks, they're safe hands. They're going to be easy workers alongside Biden and Harris. The only thing that is noteworthy of them is their identity as women of colour or women. And that's the most frustrating thing in all of this. It's sort of tiresome now having to argue this, that just simply having women in positions of power or, you know, influential positions in politics does not necessarily make a difference. And, you know, you don't have to even trot out the kind of Thatcher or the Aung San Suu line to prove that women can be politically corrupt, to prove the point that there is just no evidence to show that this is anything other than, uh, you know, really a crude attempt by Biden to prove that he's more woke than Trump, as if anyone doubted that. <laughs> the frustrating thing for me is that I'm struggling with not becoming a Twitter troll because you just want to go online and start shouting at people that so many of the commentators who are praising Biden for these appointments were sympathetic to not so long ago when he was being called Creepy Joe, when <laughs> his relationship with women was much discussed in a light that he wouldn't have approved of. And you know, even serious things like him having allegations against him of abuse and you know, assault. But all of that is gone because he's got this kind of glittery, lovely female panels of experts around him. And so, you know, it's just so cynical. I think that's the thing that's most annoying about it is that it's so cynical. It's so shallow. It's such a ploy to kind of make him look good and nod to the right people and be celebrated on social media. The difference this will make to American women's lives is absolutely zilch, nothing. You know, having an all-female press team is, you know, as about as important as having an all-female team doing the laundry in the White House. It just does not matter in terms of political change. What matters are the policies that Jen Psaki, the press secretary, is going to be announcing on behalf of Biden, not the fact that Jen is a woman. And it's that kind of cynical disconnect about the worth of having women in positions of power that is just the most frustrating. It's also worth reminding people that as well as being accused of being a rapist, essentially, Joe Biden was also accused of racism by his own <laughs> vice president-elect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the level of cynicism with these people. Anyway, Tom. I agree with everything Ella's just said. I think what's really quite interesting is you have Joe Biden saying that, you know, I'm going to have a cabinet that looks like America, but you know, you go beyond skin deep and it's a cabinet that looks a hell of a lot like the old establishment. Mm. And this is one of the funny things about identity politics is that it's often not without cause associated with what passes these days for the radical left, but it's often the kind of technocratic centrist left who are the keenest 
practitioners of it, largely because it gives them a very convenient gloss for what is the same establishment politics in the realms of foreign policy or the economy. And this is really summed up in, in the figure of someone like Kamala Harris. You know, this is someone who, broadly speaking, was very close to the kind of Clintonite wing of the party on, on various different issues. When she was named vice president, this was with the huge cooing of support from Wall Street and Silicon Valley and all these other kinds of things. You know, she was credited before the election as being someone who could enthuse black voters and women voters, despite the fact she barreled out of the primaries precisely because she couldn't pick up support in those particular constituencies. Broadly speaking, this kind of thing just makes people who already support the Democrats anyway way feel good about themselves but it has no transformative impact on anything else whatsoever and i think what we're really seeing in the in the biden administration is this fusion kind of more distinct than it was previously this has been going on for some time hillary clinton's campaign was very similar but it's this fusion of the old technocratic elite politics but just given this faux radical gloss on the basis of you know skin deep quote-unquote representation And I think that's something which is really not going to wash. And I think it's just so striking that so many people can, as I said, get so excited about what really is just a return to the same old. The only difference being that I think, particularly over the course of recent years, the level of authoritarianism, technocracy, all the rest, and also the rise of this woke politics has, if anything, become more extreme. So it's back to the old establishment politics, but with a whole layer of pretty illiberal and backward stuff laid onto it as well. There was a really telling line in in the Washington Post write-up that illustrates exactly what you're saying, Tom, where it said, you know, this was a glowing write-up, really excited Mm. about Biden prioritising diversity. And it basically said that Biden was prioritising both diversity and familiarity with Washington. Mm. So in other words, they're diverse in skin colour, sexuality, gender, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, to borrow the Trump phrase, this is the swamp, but with a new look. <laughs> I saw that piece. Wasn't it written by that, their quote-unquote like identity politics correspondent or something along what, these lines? A, a strange phenomenon that we'll have to cover one day in, in depth on the podcast, I'm sure. We could also talk a bit about the fact that perhaps there's a diversity in the transition team and the kind of fields that many of Biden's team are coming from. You've got people from Google, you've got people from Apple, you've got people from Uber, from Lyft, from Amazon. Everyone I mean, represented. Absolutely, a fantastic array of America, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Ella. That same Washington Post article towards the end talked about the fact that with great excitement, Biden is expected to smash glass ceilings throughout the rest of his announcement. And you think, yeah, smash glass ceilings for who? For these kind of extremely influential, often extremely wealthy women who it's the age old argument of middle-class feminism. We all are supposed to cheer because there's more women earning you know, telephone book length salaries when, you know, the rest of us, are, you know, our lives don't change. So it's really elitist in that term. But also just, you know, Tom used words like backwards and old fashioned. And the way in which women are being talked about here is incredibly reactionary. Because let's not forget, you know, Joe Biden has made a huge amount of fuss about the idea that he wants this period to be a time for healing. And, you know, bringing women in, in that context, presumably, you know, the, the kind of conversation goes that we are better at compromise. We are better at reaching out. We are hmm. not as brash as Trump. You know, this isn't Biden bringing women in and saying they're going to kick ass. They're going to get stuff done that, you know, this is a really exciting team. It's all in the context of the idea that, you know, women bring a different perspective. That's just sexist. It's just the sexism of old rehabilitated for a kind of modern right on audience because there is nothing about women that is innately or naturally softer, kinder, and more predilected towards healing than men. I mean, I thought we got away from that 
when we destroyed old ideas of sexism. So at the heart of this is a really reactionary idea of women's role in society, both as a kind of shallow gloss for a person like Biden, but also as what a kind of sugar and spice and all things nice addition to politics. And you know, some of these women are not sugar and spice and all things nice. I mean, some of these women are not all nice. Neera Tandon, um, just before the announcement of her new position, had to go through her tweets and delete all of the stuff she'd written about Moscow Mitch. So, you know, these women are not the nice addition to a healing politics that Biden wants, and they shouldn't be. We should get away from this idea of using women as a stage army for the kind of right on political campaigns of establishment figures like Biden. And it just reminds me of that very popular meme for the 2016 election, two people in the Middle East looking up a drone strike overhead and saying they say the next one is going to be sent by a woman. <laughs> perfectly sums up how ridiculous so much this is. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.